John, buddy, yeah. Avi Loeb and his out there ideas. I like him. Rebooting Earth. It's not a bad idea, but yeah, yeah. I think there's several things to think about before that, you know. Double back a bit. I suggest you talk to Robin Hanson, you know, about loud and quiet aliens. Then Josh and uh, Larry, of course, you know, meta governance. How do you, I mean, I mean, we uh, get data on what it's like to govern a moon or Mars colony? Life Cycle, a podcast about the future of humanity. Hello there, Ava. Hey, John. So, yeah, uh, I just played for you a voice note I got from friend of Clan Games, Adam Philipson, and he just had listened to the rough cut of episode two, Getting There, with Avi Loeb and his kind of far out there ideas about rebooting Earth from some extraplanetary hard disk. And that was his response? Yeah, and it's funny when he mentioned Robin Hansen because, when Adam did, I mean, because you and I actually talked about the ideas of Robin Hansen in season one when we looked at the idea of the Great Filter as one answer to the Fermi Paradox. Um, The Fermi Paradox is the weird fact that if the universe is teeming with life, why haven't we come across it yet? Yes, but what we're here to talk about today is uh, Hansen has a new theory and uh, he's this kind of funny guy who has a background in economics and the social sciences, applies them to, well, outer space. And he's an associate professor of economics at George Mason University, as well as a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. Uh, And what's this new theory? Oh yeah, well, it's this idea of grabby aliens. Sounds kind of gross and a little rapey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Yikes. Yes, it does. It does, doesn't it? I don't know. It does sound a bit gross. And it's always a bit obvious when you're maybe dealing with somebody who's a bit, I don't know, of a different generation and not caught up with the culture. But anyway, to put it simply, and I'm reading from the official grabbyaliens.com website. Um, sounds <laughs> sounds like a website we wow, all have to I check out. I can't believe that wasn't taken. Yeah, well, link in the show notes, everyone. But okay, quote unquote, there are two kinds of alien civilizations. Quiet aliens don't expand or change much, and then they die. We have little data on them, and so must mostly speculate via methods like the Drake Equation. Side note, we looked at the Drake Equation in episode two of the first season, in case anyone listening wants to get into that, um, because we're not going to do it twice. (laughs) No. Okay, and and then loud aliens, in contrast, visibly change the volumes they control and just keep expanding fast until they meet each other. As they should be easy to see, we can fit theories around loud aliens to our data and say much about them. Wait, so what are we? Are we loud or quiet? Well, that's what I started off by asking him. Aliens first appear quietly, and then some of them quiet ones become loud. And we could ask, what's that ratio? And that ratio is important for two things. One is it talks about our future. We're quiet now. What's our chance of becoming loud in the future? And the other is it speaks to how close might the nearest quiet aliens be. So the nearest loud one is roughly once per million galaxies. Pretty long way away. But if they were, say, a million to one, uh, quiet to loud, why then the nearest one might be one galaxy away, or in our galaxy, even. But that would all say we'd have only a one in a million chance from this point to go on to become loud, which might be discouraging news about our future. It's crazy that he got an equation to figure out these numbers, the likelihood of aliens appearing. Yeah, it certainly is. It's kind of mind-bending. Because I then went on to ask him about time. I mean, what are we looking at here? Keeping in mind that human civilization as we know it has only been around for around, I don't know, is it 12,000 years? And that's when, you know, we stopped being hunter-gatherers. The key thing that you should ask is, why not believe that we're completely alone? 
So what we see is nothing, right? We see no aliens out there whatsoever. And I'm telling you the nearest aliens are, you know, once per million galaxies. And you might think, how do we know they're that close? Maybe there's just nothing in the entire observable universe. There are no aliens and we'll never meet any, right? Isn't that consistent with what I just described? And it's not consistent with one key datum, which is the date on the clock. So we're in a universe now at 14 billion years, but our universe will go on lasting for many, many trillions of years. And we could ask if the universe would just stay empty waiting for us, what's the most likely time at which we would appear? So the average star will last for five trillion years, a thousand times longer than our star. And the power law model says that the most likely time for advanced life to appear would be toward the end of the life of the longest lived stars. And so if the power law is six, then the, race, the probability that it would appear five, at five trillion years rather than now is a thousand to the power of six or 10 to the 18, which is, you know, really a large number. With respect to that prediction, we are crazy early. If the universe would just hang around waiting for the first advanced life to appear, then no other life would appear because it was just so empty. Then when we should expect to appear is a thousand times farther in the future. And the chances of us appearing this early would be 10 to the minus 18. So the question is then how do we explain how we're early? And then the the conclusion is, well, this assumption must be wrong. The universe won't sit and wait empty until we are ready to appear. In fact, there are aliens right now filling up the universe, and they've taken about half the universe so far. We just can't see them, but roughly half the volume of the universe is filled with vast, powerful alien civilizations that have changed everything. That's why there's a deadline coming soon. Pretty soon they're going to fill up everything, and then it'll be too late for civilizations like us to appear. We had to appear now because this, there's a deadline coming soon. It's kind of terrifying to paint this picture he's describing, how loud aliens, because they're loud, have the tendency to expand exponentially and conquer everything in their path. And so this deadline Hansen mentions is almost the least of our worries when we think about the series of crises that we face and other existential threats, such as global climate change and what have you. Yeah, it really does make you think um, that we have to start thinking as one. Like, how do we make those decisions or even respond to the threat of a loud alien civilization, not just to the present day crises, but so that we can get our house in order to stay around long enough to meet the grabby aliens? I do think that in the long run, we will face this key choice about whether to be loud or quiet aliens. And I think it's not obvious what we will choose. I suspect, in fact, most civilizations don't choose to become loud. They choose mm -hmm. to stay quiet. And instead of expanding and filling a billion light years volume with their descendants and making big changes, they stay in one small place. I would be a little sad if that happened, but I think it's not crazy that it would happen. And so I'm thinking about why we might do that. But I think it's somewhat of having to do with that world community we discussed. The idea that uh, we like a world community that has us all deciding things together. And it will be credited reasonably with heading off many, many major problems. Perhaps global warming, inequality, you know, war, even will in fact be greatly reduced by this world community and associated world governments over the coming centuries. And people will like that. They will like having a world community. Okay, so the first step to becoming loud is becoming one world, right? Yeah. But then he actually runs with this. And it was here that the meta governance that Adam was talking about in the voice note comes in. 
We need to start making some decisions about coming together about how best to figure out what to do as one world. But Robin Hansen's way of bringing this up is something that kind of comes to mind in the last episode, namely when we go there, go to deep space, whether that's the moon or Mars or an interstellar exoplanet. And the key thing is that the moment you allow an interstellar colony to head off to another star, you end the era of a civilization-wide community deciding things together. You reintroduce conflict and competition, and you open the door to these descendants becoming weird, evolving to become very strange descendants, and then coming back to contest home with you. Those are the consequences of allowing interstellar colonization. And I think maybe even the majority of civilizations will decline to do that. And we might decline that too. Wow, what an image. So the spacegoers get weird and come back and mess with us. Yeah, it kind of brings to mind like um, how colonialism has played out in the past in history. The colonies grew up and in the case of, for example, something like independence and then democracy as a concept in the USA vis-a-vis the UK and France, you know, how a new world, quote unquote, updates and modifies, quote unquote, an old world, like the kids grow up and then come home to roost, as it were. But the idea of other worlds than our immediate one came up when I next talked with Joshua Tan and Lawrence Lessing, friends of the podcast who also were guests on season one. They work on something they call meta-governance or virtual governance, which I started out by asking them both when they were here in Berlin last summer. Well, maybe the best way of describing it is meta-governance is the governance of many worlds. Okay, so, but worlds that exist online or digitally and that don't necessarily have an existing structure. So if you think of working from home, for example, you're doing remote working, but the company you work for already has a setup, so you kind of know how to translate that to online communication. But with meta-governance, we're talking about governing communities, for example, without any existing structures rooted in physical reality. Yes, It's like we're simulating not only becoming loud aliens, but also how we might learn from such a new world. It's quite an image or idea, really, isn't it? Uh, That's kind of a model we use when describing why we built our projects. So think about it like this. On the internet, there are lots of ways of having a community, operating an online community of any sort, whether it be a forum, whether it be a guild in an online game, or even, you know, some of these newfangled things in crypto and Web3, uh, like DAOs for decentralized autonomous organizations. And all these things exist not because, you know, people gather naturally online with their, you know, natural rights of, mm-hmm. you know, collection and community, but because the designers of these systems said it would be so. They designed it so that you could interact with other people on the internet through these platforms and form communities that way. And meta-governance is really a way of describing what are the constraints and affordances for creating community and for creating governance, you know, that is presented by these tools. And secondarily, it's a way of thinking about what is the relationship between different kinds of governance in different communities, different institutions uh, that arise from, uh, from these tools, from these architectures. The key question, you know, like if you're thinking like what's important about this concept is how do I design new ways of building community? 
how do I build infrastructure and architecture that helps us build better communities online? Uh, this is why Josh and Larry were at Clang this summer, right? To think about this infrastructure and architecture for online communities. So Lauren Slesig teaches a course on this, meta-governance, at Harvard. And I asked him first off, so yeah, do you want to talk about what virtual governance is to someone who doesn't know anything about it? Yeah, I like to get people to think about something everybody is familiar with, which is the process of making a commitment to somebody. Yeah, um, Lauren Slesig is a consultant for Seed, the game that Clang Games is making. And Seed, uh, we should just point out, for those of you who don't already know, is a massive game uh, that simulates the future of humanity. Players are sent to a new planet with the goal of creating new groups, societies, and indeed setting up alternative community structures. So it really kind of relies heavily on meta-governance. You know, we could agree to have lunch. And that process of agreeing is you and I make a decision that we're going to pick a time and a place and express a mutual obligation to show up at that time and a place. That process is one we're all familiar with, but it creates something of value in our lives, which is something we can rely on, depending on how much you trust somebody else. The process of governance in the real world and also in the games is basically that process, but multiplied and extended to a much bigger collective or group of people. So how can we build the technology to enable not two people to come to an agreement, but 100 people or 10,000 people? And how can we make it so that they understand the obligations they're creating in as intuitive a way as they understand the obligation to meet me for lunch next Thursday? And that's, that's the challenge, to keep it as simple and obvious and natural as possible while making possible something much more uh, ambitious about the idea of, of governing, especially in the context of a virtual game. So it should be fun, like a way to cooperate together to get things done. Yeah, it's a really interesting premise. He also points out that this shouldn't be a chore. It's not like it should be devolve into political science. No, it can't get in, in the way of the game. This is not political science 101. We're not trying to teach people how to run a government. Um, this is not for the purpose of anything except making the game an even more compelling experience. But in a game like Seed, where the whole project is the project of developing and encouraging and empathizing with this world of seedlings, we thought it was a necessary addition to that process to be able to enable players and seedlings in this sense to create their own world of obligations and see what kind of settlements they can develop out of those obligations. Because there's action in a game, I guess, whereas like a social media platform is more of just communication. There's maybe not quite the same need for a rule set that's dynamic or... You know, let's say that you and I are playing in a settlement and uh, I'm trying to create, um, build a factory to produce furniture. And I have a certain number of seedlings, but I don't have enough. So I want to be able to rely on you providing me with 10 seedlings every day to help in my factory. So, you know, I could try to persuade you to do that. But if I really need to depend upon this, I might want to create a contract, an agreement, a commitment. And this is where it becomes really fascinating. And Josh and his MediGov associates, together with Larry, have built what they call a commitment engine, allowing for groups of people to make decisions commit themselves and carry out actions as a group, even though they may be thousands of kilometers apart. Or even on another planet. Yes. 
or even at the polar ends of this planet and deciding to do things together on another planet. Ooh. But not just that. There are uses for this type of tool in our everyday lives, which I think it's safe to say we realize more and more we need since, I don't know, say 2016. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, if we could find ways to virtually bring people into a same room where they've been exposed to information, common set of information, and they have a chance to look each other in their virtual eyes as they engage about the topic. We know from many examples that they actually can understand and deliberate about those topics in a constructive way. So the only difference between this is not the people. The difference is the architecture mm -hmm. for enabling them to engage. And I think that that should drive us to think, how do we architect this space to bring the best out of people rather than the worst out? And obviously, it might be that you make more money, the worse you make the environment. So Twitter right. and Facebook, they profit enormously from turning us into crazy extremists because the crazier we are and the more extreme we are, the more we engage. And the more we engage, the more money they make. So their business model trades on us being crazy. Too bad for us. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's how they're trying to make money. But if you could begin to make a platform, which I imagine Seed is going to be a platform like that, where there isn't profit to be made from turning people into crazy people, the profit is to be made from people wanting to devote time, and they want to devote time to the extent you can make this into a meaningful, interesting, subtly uh, complex uh, environment. And I think that's part of the yeah. objective of the tools that we're talking about building. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our guests, Robin Hansen, Josh Tan, and Lawrence Lessig. This episode was written by myself, John Holton, with additional writing by Ava Kelly. Sound editing and design by David Magnuson. Mundi Vundi is our executive producer, and he also created the artwork for this episode, in collaboration with Midjourney. Additional research, script supervision, and fact-checking by Savita Joshi. Follow us on all the social media, and subscribe wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Bye. I'm just... Uh... Yeah, I'm super glad you got to talk to them. I think that's so interesting, right? That you can imagine learning as a connected global civilization, learning and cooperating with another, you know, whatever. We still on for drinks later? <laughs>